0: going to do uh kyle's job again um and bronco's job and some might say my job um welcome to one 200 the new zealand and international politics podcast uh you're here with philip and justine no bronco today no kyle today they've been fired for irreconcilable ideological differences again um but we have josephine here again um for i think only the second time we've been meaning to get you back for ages but you know, you have a busy life. So that makes it hard for us. Um, But it's really awesome to have you back um, to talk about some stuff that you've been paying attention to and following in the news, obviously, the people's vaccine stuff that has been developing in, you know, quite disappointing ways (laughs) that we'll get into. Um, But also a lot of various kind of pieces of Indian news that have been accruing, especially recently.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah, so why don't you take over and tell us your thoughts and where you want to start from?
1: All right. Okay. Thank you so much for welcoming me back to one of two, two hundred. Two um, thousand. Let's
0: not get ahead. One <laughs> of two thousand.
1: We're, we're building towards that. Yeah. That yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for welcoming me back. My name is Josephine and I uh, live in Christchurch at the moment. I am teaching um, at the University of Canterbury, you know, on a contract, not permanent. Um but I've I've finished
2: my Don't you love casualized academia? You finished your PhD. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm doctor now. Doctor oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Doctor so- Josephine, how are you? <laughs> I'm just joking.
1: <laughs> Yeah, so I'm teaching in the Human serv- Human Services and Social Work Department at the University of Canterbury, and yeah, today I'm here to discuss some, you know, really uh, important recent issues and sort of contextualizing them, uh, you know, on the global level, and, you know, I would like to begin the discussion by talking about the recent travel ban, the, mm-hmm. uh, the temporary travel ban on... Um, residents and citizens uh, who are located in India and trying to return to New Zealand yes and this has caused you know some sort of some discussions in the media uh, the Prime Minister being asked this question today on QA and all those things and I think it's uh, important for me to you know uh, talk about my perspective on this issue mm. and um, you know the sort of reaction it It gave me when I first heard this. First of all, uh, I would like to contextualize this whole situation. Uh, Firstly, the MIQ infrastructure that New Zealand has built in the post-COVID sort of phase, and what was the purpose of it, and what was the foundational principle of having it. And going back to what the Prime Minister said Uh, during the setting up of the MIQ. It was based on the infallible right of New Zealand residents and citizens to be repatriated or to return home. And therefore, we are creating this this infrastructure that is actually a highly protected infrastructure, Mm. assuming that the people that are returning from other parts of the world, which are deeply affected by this virus, can be repatriated in mm. back home. And so the very first reaction when this news was announced was this is in breach of that foundational principle of the MIQ. And it, it, it also, the second thing that I felt is that it was extremely sudden. There was no uh, transparency, no discussion that this was going to happen. It just happened suddenly. And so, and so what are the, how does this, how is this going to affect people uh, who are residents of Indian origin, both in New Zealand and um, who are not in New Zealand at the moment? Who are mm-hmm. in These are many, you know, different dimensions of this. And so, uh, of course, you know, the whole issue was premised upon statistics or data mm-hmm. around um, higher cases of po- positivity coming from india and i'm not denying that these statistics exist right uh, but again it still is in breach of the foundation mm-hmm. principle of the miqs
2: right and it's and it's what we do with those statistics right and it's like data is not neutral i think that's the big thing that we need to really understand when we when these statistics are kind of bandied about as basically political tools right mm. and that's a huge hallmark of neoliberalism which is mm. like statistics as a blunt force tool to sort of enforce and discipline people right yeah um and i think yeah i think you're completely right to point to those statistics i mean like of course it's it might be true that a higher amount of people of um you know indian uh, citizens and residents of new zealand are you know who are in india returning are with high rates of covid but um doesn't that like even if that was an infrastructure problem i feel like the First priority would be to increase our capacity at MIQ, not to suddenly deny people fundamental human rights. Yeah. And the fact that like that is the first recourse, and you're right, it's so suddenly just mm. really is troubling, and yeah. it, it does speak to like to me, just like racist. It is racist. It's mm. colonial, and you just, I just really would doubt. I would, I would, I, I do not see them doing this with like the UK or um, the United States, exactly. and certainly not so quickly.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, very important point you raised. Of course, our stat, you know, the use of statistics. Uh, if you look at what happened in the United States at the beginning of the pandemic and the uh, ban for, you know, from China, for China. Example.
2: as they became the hotspot of the pandemic. <laughs> exactly. So there were statistics to back that, and yet the left
1: in the United States and across the world, you know, saw that there was some danger in this that there was some danger in this sort of creating a racial stereotype and attaching it to COVID-19. And we saw the after effects of this whole, you know, singling out China as a dangerous place. And, you know, the after aftermath of that are still faced by not only Chinese people, but OP people of East Asian origin mm. across the world. Right. And it's also similar in the case of, uh, you know, what's happened in New Zealand with this travel ban right after this happened, you know, there was so much speculation that Indians are lying about their tests and Indians are liars. And then some of the responses that I got in Twitter were also really intriguing for me. These are the people who are supposed to be the supporters of the Labour Party, who are the supposedly the center left party. And they, was, they were saying that to me that Indians have been a huge problem right from the start of Covid and that uh, New Zealand is extremely safe and I, I need to be humble. And there's nobody is nobody's asking me to stay in New Zealand. So Jesus same, Christ! Uh, the same racist tropes that we see happening in the United States around Trump are being repeated among Labour supporters in New Zealand, which is really, yeah. um, really pathetic to be, you know. Yeah. yeah,
0: I think that's I think that's fair. Yeah. I like that you um I like that you bring up the the Chinese comparison in the states because I think that is that's quite a useful one. Um, like what people jumped to in New Zealand was the UK and the US, because that's that's also a useful example from the statistics point of view to go, well, where, when that's where the outbreaks were, why did this never get even considered as an option, right? That's the kind of racialized comparison that's useful to make. But yeah. you're right that the Chinese comparison is instructive from a like comparative perspective from overseas, because mm-hmm. that was un- unquestionably brought up as the, a dangerous racist trope that could be weaponized. And yeah. that and that labor deliberately avoided. Right. And Ashley Bloomfield was ex- explicitly saying, like, this isn't a virus. This con- this virus isn't about a country like viruses yeah. don't don't respect borders. It's meaningless to, like, impose these ethnic origins or, you know, performed racist mm. uh, tropes on, on these viruses. That's, that's a human construction yeah. that we're putting on these things. And the yeah. whole thing about be kind, like assume assume good faith. That was yeah. all explicitly targeted at. De-emphasizing the racialized nature of that and preventing some of the kind of potential buildup that you get in these situations, and preventing the kind of like "quote unquote" Chinese virus narrative that took off in the states to like devastating effect for minorities. So why why isn't that the discussion now? What's changed?
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, the you know the the leader who's considered to be the epitome of kindness is the <laughs> one that's doing it this time. But then what I wanted to say also is. Uh, you know, my first reaction to this was not to look at it. You know, I didn't use the word racist when I when I reacted to it. Well, how I reacted to to it was to see that to me what it reflected is that Indians who are residents and citizens, uh, people of Indian origin who are residents and citizens of Aotearoa, you know, we have we don't really have much political power, and therefore it's a, we are easily expendable for the New Zealand government like this. Not only are we expendable, but it actually can gain some political points by doing this, by vilifying us. And this is not the first time that New Zealand Labour has done this. Look at the, you know, 2017 election when Andrew uh, Little was the leader. He used to uh, refer to Indian students as just stacking, you know, shelves in pack and save. And there's many, many examples of Labour Party um, showing that minorities within New Zealand, like Indians and Chinese minorities, um, are really expendable, politically expendable. Uh, we also heard in the case of the housing crisis, I think it was Phil Twyford mentioning Chinese-sounding names yeah, very infamously, and then, you know, just in Dardan going and, uh, again, blaming it, blaming the housing crisis on foreign speculation. Whereas even after banning it the you know the housing crisis continued unabated (laughs) yes not a problem of the nationality of those speculating it is the system itself that was the problem but you know labor very often takes these uh, political opportunities To go right wing, and because they know that a majority of New Zealand are with them in doing this because of the existing racial uh, you know, stereotypes and the existing ideas about Indian people, it's a hugely popular thing. You know, well, what, you know it.
2: I think it's also that New Zealanders are very comfortable with xenophobia, and I think like even within like the left, we're kind of comfortable with it. Which is you're talking about, you know, like Labour left people in your in your Twitter mentions um, making these kinds of comments, and I and I think like it's because I mean like honestly, I do think a large part of it is because I'm going to say something a bit controversial, maybe maybe it's controversial, but I, I actually think, you know, the bicultural model for a lot of Pākehā, even progressive Pākehā mean Pākehā and Tangata Fenua. And, you know, it's where do Tōiwi fit in that? And, you know, it's like this comfort with xenophobia, with a hatred of outsiders mm-hmm. that don't fit within that dichotomy that really is really disquieting for me. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't think labour, and especially because labour actually portrays itself as very progressive on mm. um you know bicultural issues mm. and i mean it's not but that's another side point right <laughs> but it's this comfort with xenophobia and this like idea that biculturalism means pakia and tangata mm. and where do we fit and it's you know do they fit um well they're expendable right they're disposable mm. it, it's very very I mean, I find it as an, I mean, I think Josephine and I, um, as, you know, obviously like I'm a South African immigrant, so, um, and a white person. So, t- you know, like, Pakeha accept me as one of their, one of their own, but I, I, as you know, as a family of immigrants, feel very, very uncomfortable with it, um, and and quite repulsed actually by the the kind of parochialness and the sort of just the comfort with xenophobia, even in progressive circles in this country, just really is disquieting. Yeah,
1: and if you look at historically um, as well, this is not a new thing. I feel like the settler colonial government has used this this sort of interpretation of New Zealand and biculturalism against immigrants and to divide mm. racialized groups of people, including Maori and, you know, Chinese people, East Asian people, people of South Asian origin. I don't know if you if you are familiar with the, you know, the yellow peril discourse that existed at the beginning of, you know, New Zealand colonization and some of the, some of the imagery that the government then had was showing, you know, a Maori woman being attacked by a Chinese mm. you know looking male figure and then the New Zealand colonial government is protecting the Maori woman from the so this this sort of thing that you know divides among people who are similarly oppressed is not a new thing and no. you know, it's important for us to for me recognize that. Is like after seeing this this action I was like okay so who are the people who have been left out of the COVID response in Aotearoa New Zealand? Okay, so this is for me the sudden thing. It's it's definitely affecting people from India over here. So then, who else have been affected? You know, there's plenty of research showing that among the you know the people who have lost jobs uh, disproportionately are Maori. Uh, you know, the government's refusal to raise the uh, the benefits to a livable sort of um, income. So there's so many people who have been uh, left out of this COVID risk, this supposedly amazing COVID response has left out some invisible people. And this shows the priorities of the government and where, where it wants to draw its political power from. And I think it's important for the people who have been left out to find solidarity and come together and see that this is these sorts of tendencies are coming from a particular source and we need to oppose those institutions and those narratives that um, leave these groups of people out.
0: Absolutely yeah that's that's really well put I mean that's that's what I was gonna uh, say in response to Justine's point that I think is right I think it is like it it is probably controversial but something we need to like examine and talk about more um, openly I think is the kind of rhetorical use of biculturalism as a A kind of an avoidance of the of the issue because it's not. I mean, as as Josephine says, like it's not that the people in the kind of center, maybe I guess these kind of like authoritarian centrists. It's not that these people respect Maori in particular. These people don't give a shit, right?
2: Exactly.
0: They're not the ones fighting for Maori rights in ninety nine percent of these cases. They're using that to change the issue, right? It's like it's like all of these cases. It's a similar thing. You're putting people against each other and dividing. movement that should be working together for material gains and yeah that's a great example that Josephine just said is like Uh, um, of course if you can shift the the target you can do that both ways right these are also the people who when it comes to local democracy and giving uh Maori, Maori wards a chance they say well then why shouldn't we have Chinese wards or Indian wards if the percentage of people in some areas in Auckland are higher of different minorities they're counting the they're kind of counting the numbers to discredit democracy they don't they don't care about any of these particular um, minorities right
2: exactly true yeah and I think divide and conquer is such a tried and true strategy I think and yet we seem I mean I'm just going to be like honest and critique ourselves like I think the left is quite naive to the way that these things are employed to counteract solidarity that's the aim of it right Mm. because solidarity naturally emerges because we understand that these struggles are connected Mm. um and yet of course it, it's kind of yeah it's like a, it's a tried and true strategy that we have to absolutely be aware of i think it's um you know i think it's really interesting that you talked about the principle of um the you know the miq facilities because yeah. it's really important to also say categorically like our opposition to this ban on you know residents and citizens of indian origin returning i mean not being able to return to aotearoa if this happened and we stopped people coming in from the united not that it would happen but if it were to right just theoretically from the united states and the united kingdom it's actually still bad because yeah. we have to we have to uphold the idea that people have the right to return to home to be repatriated that is you know like a gold standard in international law and you know like across the board we actually have to say this isn't okay um so th- you know like even theoretically so i agree with what you're saying it is actually in fact also the principle of it yeah. um that's really really troubling yeah I'm and sure. and yeah it just just feels like no alternatives were looked into and the suddenness of it really gets to me i think it's it's yeah. just how i feel that there's a real lack of you know, I've, I've said this actually throughout the COVID response. This is like a lack of empathy and looking for reasons not to be empathetic towards people and heralding our COVID success. But I just want to ask what is success when the rest of the world suffers? Mm -hmm. Um, What does it mean for 5 million people to, you know, be COVID free as the rest of the world drowns in Mm -hmm. the virus? You know, like, is there any sense of our obligation or responsibility to other people? Yeah. you know, do we just forget about them across our borders? Do they not matter? Because I think they matter, and I actually don't think it's much as a much of a success story yeah. actually in that in that regard. Because we're doing what are we doing internationally to actually stop the spread of COVID? Nothing. We're just we're just patting ourselves on the back because we live on a damn island. But not just nothing. It's we're actually, actually
1: actively yeah. There's some counterproductive things that. New Zealand government has done. For example, it connects really well to the people people's vaccine issue, which is, you know, um I'll give you a background of it. In October to 2020, developing countries led about 80 developing countries led by South Africa and Woo. India. Um oh,
2: Josephine, it's it's both of us. Yes. <laughs>
0: Well, wow, the most the most powerful podcast team. I just want to team say, we could South Africa is
2: always leading the charge on generic medicine and access to pharmaceuticals and taking on the pharmaceutical industry. And if you want to know about that, look at the HIV medication, the struggle over that. South Africa led the charge <laughs> there. Anyway, sorry, just a little bit of national
1: pride. Oh, yeah, because I, I wanted to come back to HIV as well, which is which connects really well into this. But yeah, so it was an initiative sort of led by India uh, and uh, South Africa uh, and agreed upon by 80 developing countries to waive the intellectual property rules on successful COVID vaccines so that poor countries can access them at cheaper rates or generic versions but also they can set up cheaper manufacturing units in their local you know centers uh, in order to vaccinate every single person who's vulnerable and you know eventually all people right uh, in order to achieve herd immunity what we call in this sense you know in the in the sense of vaccination herd immunity means achieving immunity through getting vaccination okay so according to the current sort of estimates, it will take at least until 2024 for poor countries to vaccinate their populations. And we need to speed this up because if you give it four years of time, already the uh, the virus is mutating and many of these mutations seem to be resistant to some of the developed existing formulae that have been uh, developed. So we need to do this quickly. So what these developing countries have urged was to, uh, you know, relax the IP intellectual property um, rules so that these generic versions could be made and the people can be vaccinated. And very disappointingly, as usual, the richest countries in the world, the former imperialist countries in the world or current imperialist, not just former (laughs) colonial nations, including the United States, the, the UK, France, Germany, I remember these four uh, blocked this resolution and uh, instead stood up for the rights of the the pharma companies like Pfizer to make profits, right? So it's like, and what did New Zealand government do? So there has been a civil society uh, movement to get New Zealand government to support this, but New Zealand government not only refused, but then they they came up with an explanation and they have not till date supported this initiative that would allow at a systemic level to address this issue of COVID in poor countries. And the justification they provided in the written statement was that New Zealand is contributing uh, some money into the COVAX sort of initiative which is um, a United Nations initiative and it's kind of like a charity initiative where vaccines are given as charity but this is like a small band-aid on a big you know wound whereas the the people's vaccine initiative is a systemic level sort of initiative that would address this vaccine, sort of inequality at a systemic level, not just as a few people getting some charity. So we need to address this as an uh, at a systemic level. And New Zealand has turned its back towards it. So on the one hand, you have New Zealand turning its back towards this people's vaccine initiative. And on the other hand, it goes and bans people arriving from countries that have been worst affected as a result of these the lack of vaccination among other reasons you
2: know yeah it's uh, it's really galling um you know it's what's funny about the whole thing is that i mean i think it also needs to be pointed out there's so much that you can say about how despicable it is that they're um you know unwilling to waive the ip on the on this life-saving you know medication but i think one of the most audacious things about it for me is how much the um vaccine was developed with public money Yes, and so it was developed with but te- public money, yeah. which is which now is being you know protected and yeah. for private gain, so yeah. that pharmaceutical companies can can profit while people die basically, mm. and that that's the reality of that situation. Um, mm. and it's so utterly despicable. But um, like I think it's funny in in a lot of ways because it reminds me of the the kind of um long arc of how how you know what when you when you sort of dehumanize others you dehumanize yourself right like i mean i know that that's kind of look i'm sorry not to get like esoteric like overly philosophical mm-hmm. right but i think it's really funny that um you know in the pursuit of profit um, and pharmaceutical profit. What we've done is undermined the entire effort to eradicate the vaccine, the, the the damn virus, yeah. and it's going to come back to haunt the West. Because even though you know we you know in the in the short term the West might be safe with their amazingly you know intellectual property um you know like uh, vaccine their their for profit pharmaceutical vaccine. As as you said, we're not going to get rid of the virus. It's going to mutate, and so the long. Op- tale of covid will continue to haunt us because we are unwilling to recognize the humanity of others right i mean and that's so 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 in that way we we destroy ourselves by trying to destroy others right it's like it's actually really it's almost poetic if it wasn't the, so fucking infuriating it's <laughs> like the it's, yeah
0: it's the it's the ironic kind of inefficiencies of global capitalism right that's the the pursuit of, pro- of profit is meaning that they can't they can't be successful because what they need to do to be successful is renounce some some tiny amount of that profit, and they can't. It's like a constitutional incapability of the
2: powers that be. Now, now, New Zealand obviously, like set, you know, as I said, you as Josephine said, gave that really inadequate response, though. They're getting charity to you know over the band aid. But what I'm really interested in is like, so I think there's, I think there are, there are some sections of you know, the elite, the the capital, capital that -hmm. seem to recognize exactly the problem that we've just kind of outlined. Right. Um, And that's not to their credit because I mean, it's in their self-interest. So I'm not trying to give them any credit. That's not due. Um, So what do you think about recent rumblings that supposedly the Biden administration is thinking about advocating to waive the IP stuff around the vaccine?
1: Uh, just before i just read that there are more more people and more institutions urging biden to do something about mm-hmm. it but i'm not gonna make us anything about of that until he actually does something about it so i am yeah. not. But- I don't really have much, you know, Mm -hmm. expectation of the Biden administration as such. But yeah, just to continue on that discussion on this um, intellectual property rights. One of the justifications even touched upon by the New Zealand government statement was was that the intellectual property laws are there because they encourage innovation or something like that. And I want to counter this one as well. So the whole purpose of most uh, scientists and researchers who are doing this is actually to find a solution to this problem and if you have this uh, formula and it's not reaching the people how is this going what kind of
2: innovation are they are they helping to promote anyway but that's also a myth as well it's so it's so it's so it's it's, it's, a, it's, myth. You know, it, it's a myth that's right myth. But, yeah, yeah because innovation when you actually like look at look, the big you know like all like the mobile phone broadband etc etc all comes from public funding capitalism can't innovate itself out of can't innovate itself into changing a light bulb you know like let's just be honest they innovate thousands of meaningless ways to make our lives more fucking shit like, uh, how can we rent people doors you know like so you know like every day it's just an endless <laughs> thing of like how can we make life more stupid and horrible for people and
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I think <laughs> here's like, a, here's a- know, how
2: can we rent what can we rent can we rent something like it's been maybe this. How- um
0: there's been this recent kind of I don't know if I should say reason. There's been a, a push to refer to this as like vaccine apartheid. Is uh, a term I've seen like bandied about, and I actually, I actually have a problem with that. I don't know. Well, can, how convenient, Justine and Josephine, the two most perfect people to tell me if this is a problematic take or not. Um, but I don't think, I don't think apartheid is a useful comparison. And in fact, I find that quite like desperate that that that's what people have grasped onto mm. because the the legalistic and political economy interpretation of apartheid, right, is a very like materialist legalistic barrier based on background and this kind of like unjustified creation of barriers right Mm -hmm. this is regular capitalism doing what capitalism does like this is the end result of ip law in a globalized economic system where nations have purchasing power based on existing capital accumulation like this happens all the time and i don't know if that is like related to what you were going to say about the the aids medication stuff Mm -hmm. but i think this is just a a good example because it's all happening at the same time in a very high profile way but yeah. it's not i mean there are there are like anti-capitalist implications to apartheid that this doesn't have this is the perfect outcome of like a capitalist system doing the global trade thing this right is glo- Am this, I wrong? Is
2: glo- this is this global capitalism working as designed so yeah. yes i think that you have to face that back yeah. in order to um you know actually effectively politically respond to it yeah i, I would agree with that i mean i, I don't i don't think um, vaccine apartheid is an accurate um way to describe what's going on i think you know if you talk about disparity that's one thing but i i I do think that you need to bring yeah you need to understand this is how the market functions Mm.
1: Mm. yeah and the other thing i want to say is that you know if we look at the aids pandemic and try and learn from you know history um the same issue was you know, was there during the AIDS pandemic, as you mentioned, Justine. And and between 1990 and 2000, these big pharma companies with the antiretroviral uh, formulae just held on to it. And this led to, according to many estimates, 12 million deaths in Africa. And so some describe this as, you know, sort uh, the scale of a genocide, uh, preventable, uh, when we had the antiretroviral formulae, and it was just not accessible, and you know, it seems like these countries like New Zealand just don't, you know, don't want to see this. Uh, do they not care about this? Today, the uh, the prime minister on Q and A was talking about. Um, her values as a New Zealander, you know, as values as a New Zealander respecting human rights. For me, this is a very fu- fundamental sort of thing to respect the human rights and to make this vital healthcare accessible to people, uh, millions of people in the global south. And so it's and you also said about you're talking about the tail end coming to, you know, bite us again. It's already biting us. And that's what yeah. we're seeing mm. with the increased numbers in uh, coming yeah. Yeah. So we need to move on this really urgently. And it's, um, it's really the way the WTO works is also sort of a bit mysterious to me. I was trying to learn it and they have periodic meetings and it seems like nothing's happening. But at the moment, it seems up until April 11th, there's another round of talks going on. And these developing countries and the consortium of different charities and NGOs are putting forward this people's vaccine uh, initiative again, and we'll, we'll hear what, you know, the result is perhaps tomorrow or something. But, you know, I, I don't, I'm not very hopeful, especially when countries like New Zealand uh, are not even, I mean, not even talking about it, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. yeah. I think that's true, and you know, speaking of the antiretrovirals and the struggle for that in Africa, the way that yeah. the pharmaceutical industry and and yeah, imperialist countries, especially um, the United States, attempted to block that off, and that that also ties in well to your, you know, the whole, argument about innovation, right? So little money has actually been put into. HIV and AIDS medication, and the, the medication that they did get, the antiretrovirals, was then secluded off, right? And now that COVID's come along and sort of forced um, phoma- the pharmaceutical industry to actually put money into developing um, mRNA vaccines, which is, mm-hmm. you know, long since been a technology, but but actually vaccines aren't profitable, so. There's not a lot of money put into vaccines, a lot of money put into Viagra pills and cardiovascular medication and long-term medication, but not into vaccines because it's not profitable. Mm. So because of COVID, actually, there's been a whole heap of now HIV and AIDS um, vaccines and even cancer vaccines that are being developed in conjunction because these have long, you know, theoretically been possible for a really, really long time and how many lives could have been saved, but there was never the funding to actually do that. Yeah. Because vaccines yeah. aren't profitable. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think there's there's so much to unpack there with, yeah. you know, all of it. I mean, I, I think I, I think that history with the antiretrovirals is really important and very, very similar to what's going on now. But there's there's so much even more to that with regard to the mRNA vaccines and that yeah. their fast development to combat COVID. I mean, they've this technology has existed for years and years and has never ever ever had the funding to be utilized to actually combat these um these other diseases and so that's also you know another example of um, how uninnovative capitalism actually is and, and how the market doesn't provide um, there's a synchronization
0: there right as you say like it's useful when one thing gets developed because there is a way where those things can be sort of built upon right you're building the building blocks from which a different thing could be developed and I've seen several queer kind of writers online saying like it's not lost on me that it's now with the with the development of a very public virus that affects everyone where suddenly, there's a boom in AIDS virus technology, HIV response tech, because if there's a small minority, there's not the same like commercial imperative. Right. It's a scary, like it's a scary.
2: But it's the same even, to work with. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, and even with cancer vaccines, I mean, like Cuba is one of the only countries to have developed a lung cancer vaccine. Mm. Um, there's a reason for that; they don't have a you know completely commodified uh, pharmaceutical yeah, uh, sort yeah. of yeah scientific um research thing. It's I think there's a lot to to talk about how the market doesn't deliver in terms of protecting and and um, giving life, right? Which should yeah. be an almost fundamental thing in medicine and health, but it isn't. How, how can how can we support the people's we've, vaccine uh, campaign?
0: We've we've changed from because, the like, Hippocratic Oath to the hip- hypocrisy Oath. That's what's that's what's changed. Just the
2: hypocrisy just
0: Oath. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Question retracted. Uh, back to like,
2: <laughs> can I call a port of water? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um how yeah. can we support the people's vaccine now? So. yes yeah, yeah how can we support um, them because because uh, i have a question right y- yeah. you know i want to know that that's the thing is like i feel that people are so self-interested and we don't want to see what we can't see and it's very easy to ignore what's happening in, in places that are far away and you don't have to deal with you know you don't have to be confronted with it right mm-hmm. um so how do we yeah how do we get involved and how do we push this and make it a priority in the west yeah i
1: I think that whenever we are discussing this particular issue of the travel ban from India, I think we need to connect it and discuss the people's vaccine whenever we dis- discuss this, because it, these two are really connected. And also, you know, uh, I think it's really important for us to actually talk about it a lot more. And whenever there's issues, this outbreaks happening, And mutations happening in different uh, developing countries at the moment. And then, when each of this happens, we need to re emphasize each time about the people's vaccine and demand the government to act on it. And then, you know, demand that they stand by their human rights, so called human rights principles, you know, that they claim to have. And so, I think that that's the only way to do it, to see it in context. Whenever there's an uh, action or a discussion around COVID, and um, the global south, we must connect it to the, to the people's vaccine and talk about it more and sort of popularize it more. Because a lot of people don't know that New Zealand did not take this progressive stand on the people's vaccine. And And the thing is, many of the responses that I saw urging the government to support the people's vaccine. Initially, like in January, for example, I read an open letter um, written and signed by many prominent people in New Zealand's civil society, including Dr. Um, Susie Susie Wiles. Wiles, Yes. Yeah. And many other prominent uh, members of the civil society, Uh, but they were, uh, you know, sort of appealing to New Zealand's goodwill or, For me, this response of New Zealand government refusing to support it is not an aberration. It's actually part and parcel of New Zealand's long history of foreign policy going siding with the neo-colonialists and the imperialists of the world. So it's not an aberration. This is exactly how New Zealand has behaved in the global um, stage whether it's, you know, thinking about some of the wars and some -hmm. of the imperialist actions and things like that. So it's not an aberration. We need to sort of redefine, radically redefine our foreign policy in New Zealand, uh, which in a way that reflects, actually reflects human rights and solidarity. And I was sort of very hopeful of Nanaya Mahuta uh, coming in and, you know, making a change. But I think that you know the the government is structured in such a way that perhaps a single cabinet minister doesn't have much of a say in it. I'm not sure, but it's really disappointing that this is the stand of the government. Mm.
0: Yeah, we we yet to see anything from her that's truly different in a in a meaningful way, right? Kind of yeah. some a little bit of rhetoric and and kind of on some corners that are pretty safe, but it, yeah, th- mm. this is the kind of thing that I always say makes a a mockery of the claim that new zealand has an independent foreign policy because if it were independent it would mean it would good in a in a way that wasn't tied to the major powers and didn't respect the kind of um international hegemon whether of like capital or the us or militarism or whatever and that's never been the case right but particularly now when we're still claiming that there's this i don't know we, we are some kind of independent uh force with integrity on the global stage i mean force is obviously the uh the word in, in brackets there because force is a strong word for what we have even in, in terms of soft power we're pretty we're pretty meaningless but we're just not we're, we're completely tied to these foreign powers and their wants otherwise like what possible reason could there be for not siding with a people's vaccine
1: exactly. these, and these also, aren't new
0: zealand companies i mean there's no there's not even any capital flowing to new zealand from this directly right it's meaningless
1: yeah but new zealand is taken you know i think new zealand has decided to buy Pfizer's one Uh, All the vaccines have been bought from Pfizer for the whole population. So I don't know if there's a connection there, but uh, I'm just thinking also Jacinda Ardern has such a huge sort of international uh, profile, and if she actually stepped up and did something like this, it would be really great for her. I don't see it having any downside for her Her stated principles as being a, a humanitarian and a kind whatever leader um but yeah she refuses to do to do
2: so has there been any country in like the west that has broken ranks on this or no has supported this in the Just people's today
1: i've i read that for example afghanistan's leader came and supported it i'm reading about the developing countries coming from mm-hmm. i haven't yet read any not only that uh, countries like um many countries in Europe have stopped exporting uh, mm. vaccines and it's like, yeah, Canada has five times the required amount of vaccines. Yeah. They still don't export. So We're holding. Yeah, the so-called beacons of human rights are human rights are all sort of showing their real face, but not the first time No, showing it again and again. So we should take notice and call them out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, like it's that um meme, you know, we're the baddies. Just the bad is the baddies. Oh, are we the baddies? And, yeah. Not we, I mean we're we're just um podcasters. But um <laughs> we don't matter. <laughs> but you know, In all the state is- Yeah. Is yeah. the baddies. I mean, like I think for New Zealand to break with um, the neo-colonial foreign policy, like hegemony, it would be a radical break. And yes. I'm, you know, I don't believe this government is up to the task. I wish they were, and I want them to be, and I think we should continue to push them to be. Um, but um, you know, I I think I think there have been moments in New Zealand's history that perhaps you know we can draw on, like yeah. s- like brief moments, very brief. Yeah. Um, you know, potentially they are, you know, and and they're and they're not. Amazingly inspiring, but still perhaps they they are some sort of, I don't know, president that you can draw on. But, um, you know, we didn't, um, we weren't involved in the war in Iraq. Of course, we still were involved in the other imperial war in Afghanistan. That's what I mean. It's only half inspirational. (laughs) It's like, it's like, and um, we stood up to the French on nuclear testing. Um, I believe that's all. I believe that's. I believe that's about it, Philip. End of the
0: list. Yeah. End of the list. But
2: but but those are two two times where we where we didn't quite follow along with <laughs> it and, and, and and I think you know the not getting involved in the war in Iraq is you know it was an important thing. I'm I'm not giving t- us too much kudos because we you know as um, I said. But didn't
1: New Zealand send troops over there? Not to Iraq.
0: engineers thought, depends oh, what engineers. you it
1: depends what you count. Oh, we yeah. still did. Oh, It was
0: mind. one of those. Yeah. Uh, it was one of those behind the wire know. in front of the wire things that didn't John Key took out. Like for
1: humanitarian reasons, but there were some
2: what collateral damage caused by New Zealand. Oh, never mind. Zealand. Never mind, guys. I just <laughs> I just wanted something. But for me, the main thing was the Springbok
1: tour and the yeah. And the new zealand's response but that didn't come from top down it came from bottom up and that's what we need to do we need a bottom-up response to change the the the
2: that's um that's that's what you know when nadia and i wrote that open letter to lord asking her not to play in tel aviv that was the history that we drew on because there is that, that history on the left, um, at the grassroots level of, um, you know, a real aversion to, um, to these sorts of things. So, um, that is definitely, you know, that, that is our inspiration. I think it's really important to draw on those things in terms of, you know, I hate to, I hate to kind of ever have to appeal to people's sort of national identity but you know as i said like how do we convince people of this well i mean unfortunately people respond to self-interest so i have been in my conversations really emphasizing that it is in their self-interest to support a people's yeah. vaccine <laughs> because because it is in their self-interest right yeah. and i yeah. think and i think it's only when you can answer the the question of self-interest that then you can then go beyond that and you know like and that's just my experience with people is that first you must answer to their self-interest before you can ask them to recognise other ins- other people's humanity, which is really disappointing, but is the way, unfortunately, I think people are conditioned, right, in a neoliberal kind of race to the bottom, survival, uh, you know, I'll get mine kind of, I got mine kind of vibe. Um, yeah, the other thing is definitely drawing on some of that history where there were periods where New Zealanders, working-class New Zealanders, yeah. and the left have stood up to... Yeah, global hegemons.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we have our criticisms, obviously, of all, those, of all those points that on a rhetorical level, uh, the kind of the Labour kind of centre-left would like to have us believe and have us project that there's this kind of New Zealand exceptionalism where once we, we were this kind of beacon of independent thought which would kind of stand up to America on this and stand up to Australia on that. And obviously that was never the case that to the degree to which they would like us to believe. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm tempted to say that there's still a rhetorical value in that to the degree to which you can say, look, if we are this thing, then let's do it. Like, why are we not doing this thing? There's it's
2: aspirational. This, it's aspirational. It is, yeah, it's yeah. aspirational. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's towards a society that we might, that could be, right?
0: That's not to negate what Josephine was saying before in that the actual behavior of the powers in this country aren't an aberration. They're continuing to act in the, in the way they've always been able to get away with, right? but it's do we let them get away with it? That's, that's the question. And that's where, that's where the bottom up stuff comes in. That's like, well, at what point uh, do enough people know about this and feel outraged about every day Jacinda Ardern wakes up and chooses violence essentially by not supporting this thing. Right. So Mm. at what point is there enough of a groundswell where, whether it's the comparison is like the uh, record breaking number of people on the street for the war in Iraq protests, or the Springbok tour is obviously a great example. just people just not having it to a degree to which the labor government can't get away with it anymore because this is like Mm -hmm. an existential issue for not just the countries that are currently suffering extremely badly like not just india but also you know brazil a lot of a lot of countries are really going through hell right now and we could make an enormous difference by supporting this people's vaccine and it is just insane it is insane that we're not doing that and it it is purely up to the leadership of the labor party because they seem so centralized that no one's going to break ranks there's not going to be a backbench mp that's going to you know show up to a people's vaccine march and say you know what this is a really important issue and i'm going to state my job on it which we would yeah. we would like to think that's the case but it it doesn't seem to be right it's the gracinda central labor party committee that have this wrapped up
1: yeah and and i just want to make one more point before we wrap up Jacinda Ardern sort of saying today that on on the question whether this was racist she said she would never make um, a decision based on racism but you know first of all i saw so many commentators pakeha white commentators saying it's not racist i don't know if it's them that determine whether it's racist or not firstly secondly it's also racism is not you know, even if it's not the intention, stated intention, we must look at the impact of a decision to see whether it was racist or not. So that's the other thing that I wanted to say. And also we cannot sort of disentangle uh, countries, borders, these sorts of issues from colonialism and colonial narratives and all those things. So these are a couple of points that I wanted to make before yeah
2: no i completely agree i mean it's uh it's absurd in the year of our lord 2021 that um the excuse for being racist is i didn't intend to be racist i mean uh, racism you know is a is a structure right not a intent you can what whatever you whatever you want to say like i mean that's a pathetic that's a a pathetic excuse that is a pathetic excuse i would never design a policy that's racist explain benefit levels then just there's a lot (laughs) There's a lot we can talk about there, um, but um, you know, I mean, one last thing I would say is that um, I don't, I do distinguish between the people and the government, right, and the people in the yeah. state. So, you know, I think there is a legacy of people power, of grassroots movements calling for justice and winning justice, right? And we have a responsibility. I just, I think we really have to see ourselves as being having some kind of obligation, and responsibility. You know, we can gather in large numbers, and we should for the people's vaccine. Mm. Um, yeah
0: yeah it's on that it's on that level in terms of the consequences right it's right up there yeah, in terms is, of like the most is. significant it worldwide really is. issues right now that we could yeah, feed is, into it
2: and yeah. it's urgent and yeah and new zealand could lead on it we could lead on so much that you yes. know and we certainly have the reputation that we lead which, yeah. which actually having that reputation in the west means that you don't lead it's almost like a opposite thing so whatever when
0: <laughs> it's the labor party for you <laughs> you
2: know it's like they're transformative and they're great. Well, that means they're not.
0: <laughs> that means they no longer have to be actually transformative. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They're
2: they're making some troubling authoritarian moves. They're doing some cool things. So there's. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just saying it's interesting the way that um the the thing these things are framed. Yeah, and I do think we should look to the global south for leadership on these things because there is mm. a lot, hell of a lot of leadership that you know we just sort of ignore. And that's
0: okay. That's, that shouldn't be an embarrassing thing. It seems to be. In, yeah. in the West, there's this kind of, or you know, in developed countries, richer countries, there's this real embarrassment about treating poorer nations as if they have anything to bring to the table. And that that should be seen as an indictment on the rich countries, not an indictment on the, on the poor countries, right? It's this pathetic kind of pridefulness that they bring where it sort of has to be your idea, you know? It's the, yeah. I mean, when you think about like the well-being budget that Jacinda was talking about <laughs> yep. and Grant kept trying to say that we were the first country to think about these things. It's not even close, not even close. But the fact that that was allowed to be sold around rich countries as even a plausible thing, it just shows the degree to which we don't, give a shit about the poor countries essentially right we just skip past them there's this real kind Mm -hmm. of if you wanted to talk about international apartheid that would be there
2: is like a a um in the states and in the uk and in parts of europe a nascent left right like a sort of re-emerging left and i think that there's a real responsibility that um that left is internationalist Mm -hmm. um its yeah, scope.
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no left without global so- solidarity. Yeah, exactly. You can't reduce left to a domestic boundaries of any kind. It doesn't work like that, no.
2: Yeah. So exactly. we, ju- we just have to, we really, and we really have to push that from day one, right? I mean, I, I think that New Zealand is a little bit laggy behind um, in the developments in those places where there is more of an organized left than we've sort of got here yet, yet. No, we're
0: working on it. In a self-interest, on a self-interest level as well. I mean, you don't have, this shouldn't be something that we're doing out of the goodness of our hearts, right? We won't succeed without this movement. That's the problem. I mean, if we want to succeed, these other groups have to succeed. That's well, that's that, what solidarity is it's not charity right Yeah
2: no no that's actually really, that's a really important point we should do a podcast episode about that but For i mean sure. that's the other thing where it's like internationalism is often framed as charity you know it's like the rich countries giving to the poor it's like no 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 solidarity we are equals at the table not and we're that. Well, not just that, but if you look at the transfer of, you know, things of value, it's the
1: opposite. It's the opposite. Yeah, it's, I know aid in reverse that's happening. Yeah, and not only that, the same people that oppress the working class and the poor in the West are the same people that oppress the, the millions South. of people in the global South. Yeah. And this was the case during colonialism, and is still the case right now in the so-called post-colonial period. Or Absolutely imperialism and neocolonialism well it's
2: Um, it's funny how we talk about people from the pacific given that we um they we they we steal so much from them in terms of extractive resources i mean we are bludgeoning off the pacific and then we complain about pacific workers coming here and don't we don't want to give them like basic rights or good wages so it's yeah, very good example
1: of a racist policy that New Zealand has is the immigration and the visa policies for various different regions in the world. It's different. And so that those show that's why I said the borders cannot be disentangled by from these colonial and neocolonial relations. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'd better wrap it there before we get too excited <laughs> and go for another two hours. But thanks so much, uh, Josephine. Amazing to have you back. Um,
2: Thank you thanks, Justine. Me. No worries. Good times.
0: Um, want a last want last jab last last dab of thing
2: <laughs> last jab <laughs> not no oh <laughs> oh I just I love internationalism yeah it's nice isn't it no it's so important I mean look i i feel I feel at home when I talk about it I think because you know just my own background um like I don't really feel like i rather, actually nationalism doesn't drive well with me. <laughs> I don't understand it. I'm sorry. I'm the descendants of refugees on both sides. So, and, you know, and then the only nationalist project I have to turn to is Zionism. So I'm not really. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So. That's another
0: episode right there. That's
2: another episode right there. Yeah. So, so yes, internationalism, solidarity. Yeah,
1: internationalism and solidarity. Thank you so much for having me, Philip. And Justine, it was lovely to talk to you. Yes,
2: lovely. lovely to have this again. Yes, awesome. yes. Please, let's talk. Let's talk more about internationalism.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I all love right.
2: internationalism.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, this has been another episode of One of Two Hundred. Have a great week. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Share this with a friend. Like it on whatever podcast app you use. Rate us five stars. Leave us a review. All those, all those things that you're meant to say at the end of a podcast, right? And yeah, if you have a spare dollar or five a month, give it to us so we can afford editing. We'd appreciate it. Yeah. Um And we'll see you next time. Cheers.
1: Kia
2: The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass up full The relentless routines The dying embers your dreams is a lie aspirational will you die keeping your glass half full you don't hate your nation you hate nationalism
1: you don't hate your nation
2: impute and slander
0: it's kind of what i why have why have a podcast if not for <laughs> satire irony and you know personal attacks <laughs> what else is there
2: That's what i'm good at